0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 374, Paradise Lost. So, last time we had round one. The threat of Stratford had been at least knocked back, although not yet resolved by any means. But Stratford's removal from the house on the 11th of November, at very least, took that piece off the board of play and Charles was forced to think again. There is a sort of pause in proceedings, or at least in dramatic news coming from Parliament to the waiting country at this point, for a few weeks after the 11th of November and the middle of December, Parliament doesn't really seem to be getting anywhere. Some disenchantment about this is in evidence. But you might want to visualise how things were done in St Stephen's Chapel, so if I may make so bold, you might want to hop along to the History of England website and look at the maps and pictures of Westminster Palace. But, to give you some sort of idea, the basic rhythm of the day was about three hours in the morning for a debate, and then everyone went their own way and separated into committee meetings in the afternoon to look at detailed projects. Unless there were big issues like, hmm, I don't know, discussing whether a bishop should be consigned to the dustbin of history, for example. In the morning, then, Members would make their way into the chapel, which was decked out in dark wood wainscotting, just like the film Cromwell, 1970, despite all its associated historical inaccuracies. As they filed in, you might notice a few things. At one end was a raised dais, where the speaker sat, and in front of him sat two clerks. Above his seat were the royal arms, to which members were supposed to bow before sitting. You might also notice that people often kept their hats and coats on because there was no heating. This is most unlike the white chamber where the lords sat, which had once been the Queen's apartments, and so it was comfy with fires, enough space, and all the little niceties of life that high status brings. Come the revolution, brothers and sisters. Anyway, MPs could also wear a sword, still very much a symbol of gentility. St Stephen's Chapel, where the Commons met, was very small for its job. There was nowhere near enough space for everyone. So if everyone did attend a particular debate, MPs had to stand on the floor in the galleries where once musicians used to sing and play. In debate, there was a lot of noise going on. You might be imagining these great events being discussed in stentorian, serious terms with furrowed brows and quizzical looks and pensive expressions. Not a bit of it. The Elizabethan calm was gone history. Members would talk amongst themselves, laugh, make jokes. They'd hiss and heckle speakers, sometimes shout speakers down even. The House of Commons hide-by now then turned into the bear pit that it is today. When there was a vote to be made, the doors would be locked so that no one could slip in a few gents with barrel chests and there'd be a yay-yell and a nay-yell. And if it was close-ish, there would be a division. The ones challenging the status quo were to leave the chamber to be counted. Each side was appointed two tellers who counted the members in and out and then stood in front of the bar and the clerks of the chambers then announced their scores. OK, so that's something about the scene. But look, so progress was not dramatic for a while as Parliament diligently sought to analyse the problems of the nation and get the feeling of the communities. So there were vast numbers of county investigations set up until there were 69 committees formed to look at them. People got worried about that, so committee number 70 was established, a committee to investigate committees, a meeting about meetings, sort of thing. Gosh, that takes it back to pre-shed days. Not that there'd been no action at all yet, it has to be said. So the canons of 1640 had been condemned, along with ship money, and Stratford had been removed. So something had happened. Outside in London, though, people were not content with this level of progress, particularly in the minds of a powerfully motivated and radical group of ministers and their supporters in the city, including the likes of Isaac Pennington, who I briefly mentioned to you a couple of episodes ago, I think. Isaac Pennington was becoming hugely influential. As a financier, he was the link between the city and the parliament about how to pay this blasted fee to pay for the occupation of Northeast England by the Scots. And he would try to exploit this link to promote religious reform, which was what he particularly was looking for. And he worked closely with the Scottish commissioners as well, and their hand can also be seen in what happens next, which is that together... They all harnessed the power of all that pent-up fury and outrage caused by the Laudian reforms of the 1630s. Here was their chance to set things straight, and they would not be denied. So on the 11th of December, London mobilised, using the traditional tool of community, parliamentary protest, the petition. It was called the Root and Branch Petition. And I have to say, if you are a clicktivist, take a lesson from this. What a great title for a petition, Root and Branch. According to the petitioners, the bishops and archbishops were the source of all the evils of the current church. They were to be cleansed from every root, from every branch. It linked the religious and secular grievances together, even blaming bishops for ship money, taxes and monopolies. At the end, there was this paragraph, which may well have been added by Robert Bailey, the Scottish Commissioner. The present wars and commotions happened between His Majesty and his subjects of Scotland will not only go on, but also increase to the utter ruin of all, unless the prelates, with their demandings, be removed out of England, who, as we do verily believe and conceive, have occasioned the quarrel. The petition had been signed by fifteen thousand Londoners, which is a substantial percentage of the total population of London among all the tumult and debate of religion and politics, though, keep remembering that London was not only a vibrant humming mix but it was also a city pursued at the time by economic hardship and the spectre of plague that reached its black fingers into every corner and every back street, a fertile ground basically for protest of all kinds. The petition was carried by an unruly crowd of 1,500 citizens through the city, led by two of their aldermen, who crowded noisily into Westminster Hall to the scandal and general chin-wobbling of Secretary Henry Vane Senior. There it was received by one of London's four MPs and presented to Parliament. Now for Pym and the Junto, this was not welcome, this petition. This was a massively divisive issue for Parliament in general, and would get in the way of compromise. Yes, there were almost no friends of the Laudian Church in the Commons at all, but there were friends for the traditional structure of the English Church and the bishops as part of it, albeit returned to the days of the Elizabethan Church. Presbyterianism was a very radical and unpopular religious model for many, and probably for most in the country as a whole, and although it was relatively popular in London, London was not England. In the Commons, George Digby, son of the Earl of Bristol, warned MPs not to replace bishops with a Pope in each parish. He was talking about the presbyteries that would control parish politics and morality in the structure if the bishops were swept away. Pym tried to get his Scottish allies to hold the petition back or tone it down. Now was not the time. Now was when compromise was needed but the Scots would not play ball. England must come in line with the Scottish Church if the Scottish Revolution was to be safe. Not until February 1641 would the petition be accepted by the House and a debate then led by Henry Vane, Jr. But until then, just to use the language of all those meetings of which I have now been reminded, Pym's eyes focus on the low-hanging fruit. It is an image I have always found strangely disturbing. But anyway, the fruit in question was, of course, William Lord. In fact, in a way, it's surprising that his name has not come up before. After all, our use of the adjective Lordian has been bounteous and fecund to the point of promiscuity in this podcast. So, why wasn't Lord a target for the Junto at the same time as Stratford? After all, the apprentices in May had hunted for William the Fox. And in the coming debate, the delightfully named Harbottle Grimston called him the root and ground of all our miseries and calamities, the sty of all pestilential filth that hath infected the state and government, which is language that would probably get you a common censure these days. The answer is that despite the strength of feeling against Lord and his reforms, he was not seen politically as a danger now. He was not, like Strafford, an attack dog, capable of fixing destructive jaws on the throat of reform and choke the life from it. And Lord's reaction to the calling of the long Parliament rather bears this out. He refused to even nominate an MP for his local town of Reading because he thought it would just annoy people against him further. He lamented in his writing at the time that I am almost every day threatened with my ruin in Parliament. And he discussed with the MP John Selden that he'd be happy to surrender by abrogating the Canons of 1640, for example. He spent his time in November as the long Parliament went on, not with the King or the Privy Council, planning tactics, but at home, sorting out his charitable bequests in Reading and his gifts of manuscripts to Oxford University. He thought... He was doomed, and who's to say he was wrong? Lord's account books also show that in November, the regular and frequent gifts from his king abruptly stopped. Even the man who had done so much to encourage his reforms appears to have deserted him already. Before long, it was commented that Lord was ready to die since the king did not now regard him. And so it was that at last, on the 18th of December, Denzil Hollis moved a motion to impeach Lord in the Commons. The accusations were not just religious, but also secular. He was accused of advancing tyrannical and arbitrary government. This was not a motion that the House felt like contesting, and so Lord was removed from his post pending trial. But it is very notable that, unlike Stratford, Lord was not quickly committed to the Tower. He was handed over to a gentleman usher of the King, Blackrod, I think, and allowed to come and go from Lambeth until finally committed to the Tower in February the following year. And it would be 1643 before he actually came to trial. Shortly after the debate, though, the canons of 1640 were declared to be unlawful by Parliament, which is again a sign of Parliament arrogating to itself more power than it normally had because this sort of thing would usually be a matter for convocation. But look, convocation was stuffed with Arminians, so best Parliament get it sorted. To return to the duck and ferocious paddling under the water with calm up top analogy, despite the apparent lack of progress, things were happening. Factions and opinions were forming and developing, conversations going on behind the scenes about what might happen. Historians like John Adamson have identified the role Francis Russell, Earl of Bedford, as a particular figure on the parliamentarian side, leading a smooth and powerful current in the mighty sea of politics. A gulf stream, if you like, leading, hopefully, to a happy compromise and a healthy Commonwealth. And the plankton, swimming in the stream, were led by Charles's friends, James Hamilton, the Marquess of Hamilton. I did not mean to call James a plankton. I was simply following a metaphor to its conclusion, possibly unwisely. So, Bedford then. We have heard his name before, because I failed miserably to resist the temptation to digress into the creation of Covent Garden. Bedford's involvement in that project and in fen drainage projects marked him out as an energetic man of business. He is rich, landed, and involved continually in litigation, which is a feature of property as far as I can see. And that meant he had to retain lawyers and men of business. Notably, Oliver St. John and John Pym. Bedford has been involved throughout, therefore, in resistance to the personal rule, releasing St John, for example, to work with Pym and Hamden on the ship money case. Bedford has been presented as an outsider, more at home with Warwick House than with the King's Court, but Adamson points out that Bedford was no such thing. He had good connections at court and in the Privy Council, He was well known to the king personally, though of the generation above Charles. He wore the black silks, derived from the style of the fashionable Spanish court most popular in England since the 1620s. That's also a point to be noted, by the way. Black clothing, not necessarily a sign of Puritanism. Bedford's affiliations at court were mainly with the anti-Spanish faction, and notably in line with the Earl of Pembroke, the folks we referred to before as the Patriots and his political vision was from that mould as well. So, although a Puritan, Bedford was relatively moderate in religious terms. It was secular and political reform that floated his boat. You might remember last time in Richard Baxter's speech about the Commons that met, about MPs mainly motivated by religion or MPs mainly motivated by secular issues, the Commonwealth men. Whereas Warwick might fit into the religious category, Bedford was in the latter, a Commonwealth man. So, in his famous history after the event, Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, wrote a slightly stinging comment about Bedford's motivations, saying that the Earl of Bedford was a wise man and of too great and plentiful a fortune to wish a subversion of the government. And it quickly appeared that he only intended to make himself and his friends great at court not at all, to lessen the court itself. I say slightly stinging, but also more than a little unfair. Bedford was far more subversive than that judgment implies. Although Hyde was right when he also thought Bedford wanted no substantial change in the government of the church, Bedford was indeed no Presbyterian. Hyde also described Bedford as being at the head of a group of the great contrivers and designers. And here was the plan that Bedford led his team of contrivers and designers towards. Pym, St. John, Hamden and the Junto. The plan was radical, but it was not revolutionary. In overview, the constitutional relationship of England must just be rebalanced. If the state had been a ship, then some substantial rejigging, moving of that ballast about, a bit of a makeover, but essentially the same boat. The base assumption was that Charles was no longer to be trusted, so he needed some chains to restrict his freedom. They could be pretty chains, gilded, maybe, covered in some sparkly tinsel with some feathers, but chains nonetheless. Persuasion and sweet reason were no longer enough on their own. Events had proven that Mr and Mrs Coercion had ridden into town and taken up residence in the bridal suite of history. Engine of Coercion to be money. The King's ability to raise money independently of Parliament must be taken down a dark alley, given a thorough working over and put on a ship, never to return. The King must be entirely dependent on Parliament for his ability to operate government. Secondly, since we have unwittingly fallen into list construction, the King must have better counsel. The incendiaries, as the Scots called them like Stratford and Lord, must be removed and good Commonwealth men replace them. Men like, mm, let me think, oh, Bedford. Maybe Pym, he's a good man, sound. Hence Hyde's accusation of self interest. But what Bedford and the reformers aimed for was a situation where the King's ministers had the confidence of Parliament, and that, would be the basis of the English and British parliamentary monarch forever, and had been forever also. But getting there now would be a bit of a walk. Thirdly, there must be no way the king could repeat his games of the 1620s and 1630s just declaring UDI and reigning without Parliament. So the king's right to dissolve Parliament at will must be spiked. Now that... That would not be popular with the monarch of the peace. Charles was not going to like that one bit, not one little bit. He'd rather have Marie de' Medici back to stay than have that. OK, so Commonwealth reform. Prerogative revenues swept away to make the monarch dependent on Parliament. Councillors with the confidence of Parliament. Parliament to sit by its own right. Fourthly, religious. The Church. That must be reformed. Lordianism must be reversed. Now, the Scots and the radical Puritans had got the bit between their teeth as regards bishops, but that was horribly divisive, as already discussed. Even the more religiously radical members of the Junto avoided the thought of a radical rebuilding of the church at this point. John Hamden, for example, was challenged on this point by Edward Hyde in Parliament because he smelled blood that he could create division amongst the reformers. But Hamden was no thicky; He saw a rock that would split the reformers, so in answer to the challenge, he gave only the lame reply, we're all of a mind in desiring what is best. The point is, the reformers were very aware of the dangers inherent in the religious question. What they wanted, what all Parliament would agree on, was to roll back Lord's reforms, to return the Church to the balance that had been achieved by Elizabeth, of an Episcopalian Calvinist church within which both Puritan and traditionalists had been able to live, a church of unity. In return, the reformers realised that the king needed to be offered a positive view of the future too, a carrot, if you like, not just a stick. So, royal revenues needed to be put on a firm footing. And this was Pym's Ballywick. The king would be granted by Parliament a greatly enhanced customs revenue, already the most lucrative source of money anyway, and be given regular subsidies. All of this, though, would be subject to regular renewal by Parliament, therefore ensuring the need for Parliament to sit, holding those sparkly chains. There was more. Income from royal and church lands would be improved by being let at proper market rates. For the benefit of the nobility of the realm, all those musty old prerogative fees, wardship, scrutage, the stuff which Charles had been mining for the personal rule, would go. But in return, the nobility would have to pay an annual rent for their lands. It sounds awfully familiar, all of this. Remember Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, and his idea of the Great Contract? Maybe all of this could have been prevented if James had just been a bit more canny with his cash. So, it was on this basis that negotiation behind the scene was carried out in November and early December. The reformers had taken out the stick out from behind their back and waved it around at the king, ship money condemned, Stratford and Lord removed. Now, a channel of communication to the court was opened up through Harry Vane Senior, the Secretary of State on one hand, but connected with the reformers on the other, not least through his son, Harry Vane Jr. Harry Vane Sr was delighted with the plans as presented to him i can see him beaming with joy right now as i type his majesty would be very joyful to hear of our care of his revenue and our desire to make him able to subsist like a king not quite sure harry senior was right that the king's reaction was likely to be joyful but you know let's see much later after after the restoration Edward Hyde would look back at Harry Vane, senior's, gambling around like a young lamb in a very sour way indeed. But then he was jaundiced by his access when he wrote to twenty twenty hindsight. But his judgment was cruel. An illiterate time server of mediocre abilities who joined the court to enrich himself rose to a position for which he was utterly unqualified and betrayed the king because of personal malice against a more able rival. The judgment was probably a bit unfair, but there were personal relationships involved. The more able rival mentioned was Stratford. Stratford had resented Vane's promotion to being Secretary of State, and a previously friendly relationship had then turned bad. When he'd been promoted to Earl, Stratford meanly took the title also to Raby, Vane's own seat. It was a deliberate snub. And Vane was not man enough to rise above, or indeed to turn the other cheek, as we are taught to do. As a result, there was trouble. One insider wrote home that the Privy Council is divided into a double faction. The Lieutenant of Ireland goes on still in a close, high way. Sir Harry Vane marches after him in a more open posture. Fiery feud there is between them. I've frequently been told not to tread on people on the way up. It's never been much of a problem for me, having remained resolutely earthbound. But someone should have told Stratford because the vein-shaped chicken was coming home to roost one day and one day soon. Nudge, nudge, wink. And I say again, wink. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Now, meanwhile, in Charles's head, the man himself was having to deal with a series of nasty setbacks. Stratford had been dismissed and was in the Tower. Lord had gone. The cannons and ship money had been condemned by Parliament. And the determined and exasperated tone of Parliament was now very clear to him. Also, the separate negotiations with the Scots, led by Hamilton, had been essentially something of a capitulation, and were beginning to look that way on the 3rd of December, in an announcement which must have had the Covenanters and their English allies leaping and high-fiving as though Scotland just qualified for the World Cup, Charles indicated that he was likely to approve the Acts of the Scottish Parliament. I need to go through what that would mean, and really you need to be sitting down and preferably not operating heavy machinery, okay? He approved thereby the abolition of the prayer book, the 1640 canons, the abolition of bishops. I mean, what? And, maybe most extraordinary, he agreed to hold triennial parliaments without the lords of the Articles there to help him control the agenda of Parliament. One issue did remain unresolved. The Covenanters wanted Parliament to have the right to appoint Charles's ministers, a matter which was kicked down the road to the next Scottish Parliament. Well, good golly, Miss Molly. There's a deal of scepticism now and then that Charles really meant all of this. The distrust left by the two bishops' wars would take a long time to heal. On the other hand, the revisionists would argue that Charles was capable of looking for peace and compromise. He would soon be entertaining similar ideas in England, after all. But there are alternative interpretations as to this change in heart and what drove it. Charles knew very well that everything hung on the Scottish army. Without it, the reformers had little leverage, or at least the pressure for reform would be much reduced, because the financial pressure would be lifted from Charles's shoulders. He could disband the English army and remove the reason for Scots to stay in England, so he wanted the Scots army gone at any price. And once more, maybe then when he had a grip on England again, he could then use the power of the English purse to visit vengeance, retribution and fire on the Scots. OK, so Charles was having a hard time. Nonetheless, the negotiations between the reformers and the king through vain, were not going very well, and the Junto were beginning to get impatient at the king's intransigence. And then, near the end of December, Bedford caught the wind of some news that shook the confidence of the reformers that they would ever move towards an agreement with the king. The rumour was that John Conyers, the king's Field commander in York, still commanding the English army of 15,000, by the way, was planning a resumption of the war against the Scots. There was a loud crack as the patience of the Junto snapped. And within a week, the Commonwealth men released a ferocious attack on the king's prerogative to force Charles to the negotiating table. William Strode MP had been released in 1640 after eleven years of imprisonment for his role in the 1629 Parliament, a running abuse of the privilege of Parliament, by the way. On the 24th of December, 1640, he put a proposal to MPs for annual parliaments, striking at the heart of Charles's power to dissolve Parliament arbitrarily and declare another personal rule. Parliaments will be called, said the Bill, whether or not the King sends out his writ. Walter Earle, imprisoned for refusing to pay Charles's forced loans in the 1620s, had Parliament agree that payments to the Scots would be made through Warwick and the petitioner earls, not through the King, thus making sure Charles could not divert money to nefarious ends such as using the English army to attack the Scots. Payments and subsidies would now be arranged by Warwick with Isaac Pennington. In a way, Parliament was beginning to behave as though the King was incapacitated a legislature ruling without him, a supposedly advisory legislature becoming the executive. Thirdly, Oliver St. John then launched an action in Parliament against the judges that had defended ship money. Specifically, Lord Keeper Finch was impeached for his role in the ship money trial, though before hands could be laid on him, He fled to that favoured destination for political and religious fugitives, the Netherlands. This happens so often. The poor old Netherlands must have been bulging at the seams with discontented English folk of all types. Lord knows what we'd have done if they hadn't been there. That's the end of John Finch's story of the civil wars, I have to tell you, though he'll return in 1660. So, an assault which stood to strip the king of his sources of finance and ability to declare personal rule to try and raise them anyway. The result of this could have been outright war, but Bedford and the Commonwealth men also held out the hand of friendship to Charles. So it was proposed that four subsidies would be granted at the same time. So the challenge was clear. Negotiate, because without it, Parliament will deprive you of the ability to determine a settlement. The reformers were not backing down. Right. Let's leave the Palace of Westminster and nip over to Whitehall Palace again and see what's going on now in the King's Councils at this point. Just a quick reminder we have a king with a keen sense of honour and a belief in his own divine mandate. And also a rather secure in man, and therefore liable to see disagreement such as he's getting from Parliament as an insult and simply a sign of disloyalty. He was a good and loyal friend to those who stood at his side, although William Lord might disagree, and therefore Every instinct screamed that he must defend and stand by Stratford. But around him there was a group of men and women who, just as Alfred Doolittle knew, knew that he could not afford any morals, so their king could no longer afford this sense of exalted honour. Which brings me finally to Hamilton. Now Hamilton gets a hard time. He stands accused of working for compromise, simply defend himself from being jailed for being named by the Covenanters, As an incendiary. But I think this is a bit bit harsh. Hamilton had proved his good sense in Scotland, trying to get his king to compromise, and had done his best, nonetheless, to do his boss's bidding. He could see now that Charles could not blar his way out of this one. He must be flexible and make concessions. Also, Hamilton had colleagues at court who agreed with him and were off his mind. One of them is Henry German, who was a close counsellor of the Queen. And it was the Queen herself who will now be a prime mover in bringing compromise. And there were others around the King who wanted compromise. Viscount Falkland, Viscount Conway, and the old pro-French Protestant anti-Spanish faction, Northumberland, Pembroke, Holland. They had been out of favour for a while. But Charles was now no longer so enamoured of his pro-Spanish faction because Spain had failed to deliver money or troops in his hour of need again. OK, so what I'm saying is, there is a peace party saying, take this deal and forget Stratford for the good of the nation. Charles is being stubborn, hoping for unicorns. At this point, something surprising happens. It comes in the form of Frederick Henry, the Dutch startholder and Prince of Orange. Now, Orange knows what's going on here, and he sees an opportunity to use Charles's general air of grump towards the Spanish to bring Charles away from the side that has cookies and back to Protestantism. A proposal was revived that his son William should marry Charles's daughter Mary as part of an alliance. It seems to be this that finally opened the gates to advice for compromise. The proposal, soon agreed, knocked back the Spanish faction in Charles's mind. It bestowed prestige on the Protestant faction. Meanwhile, Henrietta Maria enthusiastically supported the prospect of a new make the Habsburg eat dusk alliance, Netherlands, France, England, and glory of glories. Concessions finally began to come forward from Charles's mouth. The case of the judges was first. On the 15th of January, 1641, he made a stunning announcement. Judges would no longer hold office at the pleasure of the crown. Now, this rarely gets mentioned in Civil War stuff, and I say shame. Shame on us, I say, because that is fundamental to the independence of the judiciary. No longer can the monarch pressurise judges into decisions they demand on pain of dismissal. Wild! More, it was then followed by Charles promoting the very man who had led the attack on the ship money. Judges, Oliver St. John, was made the new Solicitor General. In terms of olive branches, it was a generous one with leaves and olives left on it and all. Hamilton persuaded Charles to appoint a new bench of judges all Bedford and Northumberland nominees. At one stage, remarkably, Pym, Say and Seal and Bedford were actually closeted away face to face with the Queen explaining their plans to her. And then on February the 4th, Parliament was astonished to hear from the Queen directly. She wrote to them. Now, the Queen's councillors were a matter of angry and constant debate about, you guessed it, her Catholic household. And the anger directed at the Queen's head will remain a constant factor. One of Charles's more attractive traits was his evident and constant love and concern for the safety of his family. Anyway, the Queen sent a lovely letter to Parliament assuring them that a particularly fractious Catholic priest, Rossetti, was going to be sent back to Rome as they wanted. And she apologised for her appeal to Catholics to support the king in his Scottish war and promised to bring people together. Henrietta Maria has a reputation as headstrong, incendiary, careless of consequences. Here she is, in the traditional role of queen since time immemorial, the peacemaker, intelligently and sensitively searching for peace and bringing people together. Though, fair later when the chips are down, she'll be a tiger. On the 23rd of January 1641, Charles gave a speech at the banqueting house to all the assembled Parliament. Now, Charles could not help expressing a bit of his frustration and fury at the water that the royal horse was being dragged to drink. There are some men that more maliciously than ignorantly will put no difference between reformation and alteration of government. Warwick, Junta, I'm looking at you. But apart from that... The speech was amazingly conciliatory. Whatsoever part of my revenue shall be found to be illegal or heavy to my subjects, I shall be willing to lay down, trusting in their alterations. Wow, by eck and by golly, by gum! the King has accepted the cancellation of prerogative rights. There are still problems lurking. Numero uno, Stratford. It hurt, Charles, immeasurably to think of his loyal servant being punished. So there's an affair that sets everything back a bit and make people think that Charles might be thinking that their unicorn is going to appear here and that Stratford won't go to the dogs. Charles uses his royal prerogative to reprieve a Jesuit, give them a pardon, a Jesuit who had been tried and convicted for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, essentially, i.e. England. So people panic. Panicky people can't make deals. Is this what Charles is planning for Strafford? Is everything just a blind? Will he simply use the royal pardon to set Stratford free when he's impeached, if he's impeached, by Parliament? So once again, the Queen intervened here, explaining the realities of life to Charles, and a deal was done. The reformers gave Stratford two weeks to prepare his case before trial, And promised that said Jesuit would not be executed, whatever his sentence. Charles withdrew the pardon. Gosh, it's all rather emotional, touchy feeling and moving. We are coming to compromise. There is another problem religion. Finally, the day dawned for the Root and Branch petition to be debated in Parliament. Now, Charles was implacably opposed to the abolition of bishops. Implacably opposed. Conrad Russell makes a rather astute observation. He is, after all, well-known as a clever chap, our Conrad, and I suspect might be a descendant of Francis Russell, Earl of Bedford, am I right? Anyway, Conrad Russell makes the point. We accept that a majority of English, and especially MPs, were not prepared to compromise the religion they had grown up with. And yet, we assume Charles should be a political realist and compromise over his religious beliefs. Well, Charles believed in his, admittedly extreme, view of the divinity of bishops as firmly as Calvinists believe in predestination. And so how are we to blame him for that and not the Calvinists? So, anyway, 10 to 15 years ago, the idea of a petition for the abolition of bishops would have been absolutely daft, completely unthinkable. That this was now a matter for debate in the Commons of Parliament was the clearest evidence of the chaos that Lord and Charles had wrought with the settled Elizabethan Church, a settlement achieved only after two generations had passed. The issue also divided Parliament, as we've said, and would do so throughout the period. The Scots were utterly determined they would have their way, the bishops would be abolished and the Presbyterianism established. And there were plenty, as I say, in the English Parliament that would agree with them. Scots saw it as essential that England would come into line with Europe's most perfect church, and Charles could never again impose his religion on his Scottish subjects. But it was deeply divisive for the English, and specifically an issue that divided the reformers. So of the Commons, maybe only about 130 of the 500-plus members were actually in favour of Presbyterianism in England, and a handful of peers. The likes of Bedford had absolutely no desire to get rid of bishops. All they wanted was to return to the Elizabethan Church. But the Scots wielded enormous power because of their army and some of the English agreed with them. So if the Ruton branch petition was accepted, it would spell the end of the tentative peace and destroy compromise. So, the debate on the 7th and 8th of February was hard-fought and close. In the background... Once more, Charles made a major concession. He would sign up to a formula agreeing to return the church to the Elizabethan state. So in the debate in Parliament, three men were all celebrities now, Hamden, Pym and St John, and they were pivotal. If they spoke up for the root and branch reform, the petition would pass. What they did was to sit on their hands. They said nothing. The moment of danger passed. The petition was referred to a committee. The Scots tried to pack the committee with their supporters and thought they'd succeeded, but crucially, the terms of reference for the commission specifically excluded any discussion of the role of bishops. It was a reprieve. The root and branch proposal looked buried. It was defeat for the Scots and the English Presbyterians. Peace then approaches, surely... Charles was now faced with an agonising decision, one more, the triennial bill. So this is Strode's bill for annual parliaments, which had been amended to election every three years rather than every one year. This was crucial to Bedford's settlement, the lock that prevented Charles from reneging from the deletion of his prerogative money, raising powers by just dissolving Parliament, that tied Parliament financially to Parliament forever. George Digby, the radical son of the Earl of Bishop, took the bill to the Lords, there it was approved, and now it came back to the King for assent. This was the moment. Now Charles's head was forced unavoidably to the grindstone of reality as it spun and ground. He was now required to accept the chains that would bind him to the grindstone of accountability and limitation. And it was too much. He would not do it the Venetian ambassador reported his fury that this bill would ruin his authority entirely. The king became very angry. Charles knew he was being frog-marched towards the end of the idea of divine right. Despite his counsellors, he would not do it. But then Henrietta Maria intervened. Henrietta Maria explained the realities of his position to him. And Charles gave way. So, on the 16th of February, there was a piece of theatre, so beloved of English politics. The King's assent in Parliament was presented as a ceremony of reconciliation. The King was crowned and robed in ermine and was escorted to the bar of the House. There, the Speaker presented Charles with the four subsidies of the Commons as what they called a free gift. Actually, of course, it was the most expensive gift ever, but whatever. Charles made a speech. He accepted that the status quo was irrevocably changed by the terennial Bill, yielding up one of the fairest flowers in his garland. He expressed his confidence that Parliament would now not push him on the matter of bishops, and true to form, slipped in a dig that Parliament had proceeded to the disjointing almost of all parts of his government. Public euphoria greeted the passing of the tri- Triennial Act. Bells tolled, the streets were packed, bonfires burned. Three days later, on the 19th of February, the new order was confirmed. Bedford became the Lord Treasurer, Pym, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Other reformers were summoned to the Privy Council, the Earl of Essex, Hertford, Say and Seal, the future Earl of Manchester and the Earl of Bristol and Lord Savile. King's councillors with the confidence of Parliament. Conspicuous by his absence, was one of the greatest peers of the land, Warwick. Charles was still playing politics, as he should, of course. The moderate reformers and supporters of the continuance of the Episcopalian Church were rewarded. The incendiary radicals like Warwick were not. The king's teeth as he made these appointments must have been ground to shapeless stumps. There is no doubt at all of the rage, frustration, humiliation and fury with which these concessions had been made by Charles. There's no getting round it. The sword had been at his throat. But the new Commonwealth, incredibly, was dawning, achieved by evolution and compromise without blood. And then on the 24th of February, a handbill appeared on the streets of London, written, printed and distributed by the Scots' Treaty Commissioners in London. And paradise was lost.